Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with dementia. For those of you that are new to our show, I just want to give you a brief introduction about what we are all about here. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss, as well as caregivers and professionals, so that they can be empowered to live purpose-filled lives as we join together in collaboration to um, shift our dementia care culture. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Our channel expert, who is living with the disease himself, um, Rick Phelps, I'm not sure if he'll make it uh, on the show today or not, but if he does, I will definitely pull him in. Um, Rick's schedule kind of bops around there, so um, hopefully he'll be able to join us. If you're not familiar with Rick, I encourage you to go to Facebook and just learn a little bit more about him. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in June of 2010, and he is the founder of Memory People. Memory People is a closed group on Facebook which is a true support group in true time, um, which has people all around the world connected in terms of dealing with this disease. There's no pitching. There's no selling. It's just real people with the disease, people who are caring for those who have the disease, both family members and professionals, as well as advocates that just want to join forces together You can just go to Facebook and in the little search bar, type in Memory People, and the group will come up, and you can go ahead and request to be part of that. On our homepage here on Alzheimer's Speaks, you can find links to contact both myself and Rick. Um, If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. In addition, while we're on the show live here, you do have an opportunity to join the conversation. You can either call in at 714, I'm sorry, 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757 and push one and you'll get into our queue and you can ask a question or make a comment and join the conversation. If you're listening by your computer, however, you also have an opportunity to join the conversation via the chat box. You just type it in and and push enter, and we will see that comment and try to address it for for our audience and get your your questions and comments um, into the show here. We would also appreciate any help you can um, give us in terms of spreading the word about our show because, again, this is all about awareness and it's a team effort. So if you um, like the show, we would appreciate it if you would like us or tweet about us. Uh, That would be extremely helpful. Today we have two wonderful guests, and the first one is Dr. Barry Greenberg, and he is the Director of the Neuroscience Drug Discovery and Development at the University Health Network. Um, He's also the Director of um, Strategy for Toronto's Dementia Research and Alliance, and now he has taken on the role of Interim Vice Director of the Toronto Western Research Institute. How are you doing today, Barry? I'm so excited that you're able to join us. Well, thanks very much. I'm doing quite well. 
Well, good, 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 good. I'm going to just give people a little bit of background, and we'll go ahead and jump into our conversation here. Um, Barry has been involved in Alzheimer's disease research and drug discovery since 1985. He's held a series of positions internationally in the U.S., Sweden, and Canada within the uh, biotechnology and pharmaceutical industries. Dr. Greenberg was the leader of the drug discovery project at, um, let's see, I'm I'm going brain dead here, AstraZeneca, is that how you pronounce it? That's right, yeah. Um, Through lead optimization involving up to 50 individuals from eight different uh, departments. Before joining the university um, health network referred to as UHN, he was the senior uh, director of the pharmacology um, and, you know, he's just, he's, He has such a wide variety of skills and backgrounds. He is so connected all around the world. It's just been kind of fascinating to to talk to Barry. Um, He possesses a significant background in most aspects of drug discovery processes, and he's going to share a lot of, um, you know, his background with us today and what is going on. Um, Our connection kind of came by um, through a friend of his, and so, Barry, do you want to do a little shout-out to your friend who connected us? <laughs> yeah, it's a fellow who I've been uh, interacting with uh, since we met in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, summer, I believe, of 2007, uh, when he attended a, um, a workshop that uh, I was uh, one of the faculty members uh, leading. So uh, hello to Farhan Subhani, Dr. Farhan, in, uh, in Pakistan, who uh, actually connected uh, Lori and me. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. I just love hearing from people all over the world and um, their insights. And they're like, you really need to talk to this person and, and get their message out there. And so if you know of somebody, if you're out there listening and you know of someone whose message needs to be heard, who's doing something a little different, if they're a professional, if they are living with the disease and actually diagnosed with it, or if they're a care partner, we need to tell everybody's stories and make this an even playing field so we can all kind of play in the playground together. So wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. I want to ask, because I always ask this question to everybody who comes on the show, Barry, have you had um, a personal touch with this disease, or is this just more of a business um, realm for you? Oh, this is definitely uh, definitely grew out of a personal touch and uh, became a, a career long quest. Uh, it was uh, in the early '80s that um, we we started to notice. My family started to notice memory problems in uh, my grandmother, my father's mother, and uh, she was a an extremely uh, articulate, uh, very elegant uh, lady. And things started to uh, go south after she was uh, actually mugged on the street in the Bronx and lost consciousness. And uh, I think we would probably uh, uh, go back to that event that led to the onset of of dementia, which eventually took her life. And it was in uh, April of 1984 that I took my uh, two-year-old daughter on the plane and we went to visit Nana uh, at the nursing home. Uh, It was the first time I had ever seen... Uh, Alzheimer's disease uh, in its reality, and she had already progressed into uh, what I would now characterize as mid-stage disease. 
uh, and it was shocking to me. So uh, at, at the time, I was uh, in my first professional position after my uh, postdoc. I did a Ph.D. and then a postdoc at Stanford, and I was working for a biotechnology company, uh, fairly directionless. I was a journeyman cloner. I was leading a DNA synthesis facility. And uh, after I saw what had happened to her, uh, I recall uh, driving back to the airport. My aunt was driving me back to the airport, and I thought, you know, I have a, I have a set of talents that I'm not really applying to anything that's meaningful. And uh, I decided to make this my uh, my quest. My um, So I went back and, and wrote the first neuroscience proposal that was ever presented at this startup biotechnology company. Two years later, uh, I was one of the uh, initial half dozen or so people who cloned the amyloid precursor protein that, uh, when it's processed, leads to the amyloid deposits in the brains of Alzheimer patients. And I actually read the sequence of that clone uh, on exactly the one-year anniversary of my grandmother's funeral. Wow. And... Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a moving moment. Uh, I, I locked myself in 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 the room where we had the the computer, and when I realized that uh, I had the clone in hand and that uh, I, I didn't know about the other half a dozen or so people who were working on this, uh, recognizing that uh, there was a, a fundamental bit of information in front of me that I only knew in the world. Uh, I just kind of sat back, put my feet up, called my father to share it with him. And uh, then went outside and brought back some uh, champagne and cheese to share with my colleagues. And uh, that, that really kick-started the program. And, and from there, um, I moved on to, you know, rather than, than change projects within a company, as, as many people do to maintain their jobs, uh, I maintained the, the, uh, the commitment to um, doing something that would help discover a treatment, a therapy for Alzheimer's disease to uh, eradicate it, prevent it. And I followed that quest from company to company. And uh, that always led my career decisions and uh, led me to this opportunity here at uh, the University Health Network when it was uh, uh, opened uh, to me to make something happen within the, uh, the citywide landscape. And uh, when I saw what existed with the uh, five memory clinics in Toronto that are affiliated with the University of Toronto, uh, it became uh, the Toronto Dementia Research Alliance that was the uh, the heart of, of what I'm doing in the Alzheimer area. And in, in addition to uh, uh, more things in the in the more generic area of drug discovery. Can you tell um, our audience what uh, what a memory clinic really is? What, anyways, what it is up there? Um, in, area? in in simple terms, it's where people go who have cognitive deficits when they have they have uh, concerns with their their memory that are uh, interfering uh, with their ability to navigate their their normal existence. Uh, so so you know, you don't want to say a dementia clinic. Uh, mm-hmm. But they certainly are dementia clinics. But people uh, will also uh, see these uh, facilities. Their physicians there uh, when they're in earlier stages and and not in uh, full-blown stages of dementia. So so the worried well all the way through uh, mid to late stage dementia patients. And it's not just Alzheimer's disease. There are uh, there are other uh, diseases that 
that cause these sort of cognitive deficits and you know, a subset of Parkinson's disease, frontotemporal dementia, there's Lewy body disease, there's vascular uh, brain disease that can cause cognitive impairments. So it's the, it's the symptoms of um, early to severe dementia that bring people into these memory clinics. Okay. And so the, the memory clinics are really a medical state. It's not like a memory cafe. I just wanted to clarify that for people. No, no. These are, these are basically tertiary <laughs> care uh, facilities, uh, inpatient, outpatient. Uh, this is where the, uh, the more advanced assessments will be done and uh, you know, therapeutic regimens implemented. Usually they're by referral. Okay. Okay, wonderful. And you said you've got five of them up there. Um, can you there are explain? five, and, and across these, mm-hmm. these across these five clinics uh, in Toronto, uh, the estimated numbers of patients who are seen uh, uh, comes up to about seven thousand a year, and this includes uh, two thousand new patients each year and five thousand follow-ups. Wow, that's a that's a, a big need out there. So that's a fantastic fantastic approach. Um, can you tell us? Um, a little bit more about the Toronto Dementia Research Alliance and and why this sort of organization is so important? Uh, Certainly. Um, It really gets down to the importance of of combining efforts, of creating alliances in order to be able to to make an impact on on this disease because of its complexity. Uh, There is an inherent variability between patients and within patients from one assessment to the next. So uh, if if one is going to understand the natural history of the disease, what is actually the process that an individual undergoes when uh, traveling the path of of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, uh, it requires large numbers of subjects. It requires large collaborations. And frankly, on on a global scale, things are moving towards uh, national and international alliances. So uh, within Toronto, there were five five memory clinics. Uh, there were collaborations certainly among uh, many of the uh, the researchers at these clinics, but it wasn't anything that was uh, organized on an alliance-based level. And it became uh, apparent to to me and to my colleagues when we began discussing it that creating an alliance would be much more powerful than having these uh, clinics running only independently. So there, there, certainly there's independent research going on within each of them. But now we're meeting as a group, and we are putting in uh, funding applications as a group that can reach for objectives that wouldn't have been achievable uh, with individual uh, researcher-initiated uh, applications. So we're, we're, making a, uh, we're, we're hoping to make a much stronger impact uh, on understanding the disease and eventually treating it than we would have been able to do before. And uh, when I first put this together, um, I had just uh, I'd been here for about a year. Uh, I was at a, uh, a think tank symposium uh, uh, that was gathered by the uh, organizer that led to the Prevent Alzheimer's Disease by 2020 initiative, uh, Dr. Zavin Kachaturian, and I was sitting at the uh, at the banquet table with the fellow from the National Institutes of Aging who is in charge of the Alzheimer's Center program in the United States, and this is uh, Dr. Creighton Phelps, and uh, an old friend, 
And he said, so, Barry, you've changed jobs again. What are you doing now? And when I told him what we were putting together, he said, um, you know, the, um, the NIA does site visits twice a year of existing and uh, uh, prospective centers. Why don't you guys do a site visit for us when we're at the American Academy of Neurology meeting next April, which is going to be in Toronto? And my immediate response was, that's a great idea. And uh, recognizing that it had been only one month since we had our first discussion meeting in Toronto that we wanted even to consider putting an alliance together. So I came back home <laughs> and I said, listen, guys, we've we got to focus because uh, six months later we have to do a site visit for the, for the NIA. And the group came together. Uh, there's nothing like a deadline to focus you. And we, yeah, we, we, we made a presentation of our capabilities, and the feedback was, was really rather remarkable. Uh, the feedback was, number one, why haven't, hasn't this happened in Toronto before? And number two, you guys have the capabilities uh, within your alliance that are on par or better than many existing centers in the U.S., and that was the validation that we needed. We were able to take this to uh, to the dean, uh, to the uh, the uh, CEOs of the member hospitals, and uh, long story short, we got the seed funding that uh, gave us legs for three years. And uh, we're within that three-year period now. And our charge is to come up with sustainable funding, external funding, to to keep this going. How exciting! I just. It- I mean, it really. I, my whole body just gets tingly when I when I think of the collaborations that are going on because I think we're really going to be able to make a difference when we're all working together. It's it's just a phenomenal thing I think that is happening right now, and I just find it so exciting. And for well, from, from my from my perspective, it's 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 inspirational and it's it's a privilege to work with these colleagues who 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 are coming together. Uh, it's 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 really a um, a very special time. Yeah, the the great minds that are out there and the diversity of of thought and the, the creativeness is just um it's very very exciting and to me it gives me just a, a ton of hope and it inspires me to want to connect more with people all the time and and help, you know, kind of raise everyone's mission and pull people together any way that I can <clears throat> that I can help through the the radio show or the blog because again that's what it's all about, you know, this piecemeal thing is just not cutting it. And um, everybody around the world is going through this, and we need to talk about this, and we need to be honest about, you know, what it's like and, and how we can deal with it and um, not put it in the box or the closet anymore. It's it's time to come out and, and really um, spread the word. Now, one of the things, I was reading an article, um, this was in the beginning of January, and I just kind of like your comments on this. It says, Canadians dismiss early signs of dementia. And I'm not so sure that Canadians are so different than everybody else around the world. Um, and I, I believe that was from the, um, oh, where the heck It's from it? the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Yes, yes, yes. And so what were your your thoughts? Did you have a reaction to that at all? or? Well, I didn't just react to it i was interviewed about it uh, oh, <laughs> uh, and okay. and i was i was part of the uh the alzheimer society campaign to get that word out um the, all of that was done before i was pulled into into the discussions uh yeah the, it it's 
It's a frightening diagnosis, and uh, I, individuals who are, who are diagnosed with dementia are, are concerned with losing their freedoms, losing their driver's license, with, with, the, with the stigma uh, that would be attached uh, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And the reality is um, signs of early dementia are typical as as we age. Uh, as I as I try to tell my father at times, it, it's it's not forgetting where your car keys are; it's forgetting what your car keys are for that you need to worry mm-hmm. about. Um, so yeah, the 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 um, survey showed that people were delaying. Uh, obtaining the diagnosis uh, for up to a year or two after they were first noticing the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the push for that campaign was to encourage people to get early diagnoses. Now, now the, um, the problem in that issue is we don't really have a way to stop the disease. So what's the purpose of the early diagnosis? Well, the mm-hmm. reality is that there are things that you can do that uh you know particularly related to to diet to cardiovascular health there are lifestyle things that you can do intellectual exercise that will slow the process of the disease so you do want to know uh and and adjust your lifestyle accordingly as quickly as possible and most importantly there are dementias out there that you know even though they're not the majority of cases are treatable mm-hmm. so you know, there can be uh nutritional deficiencies vitamin b deficiencies uh, diseases uh, such as uh, as simple as Lyme disease can cause dementia symptoms, and you need to know what's the cause of the symptoms because you may have something that is treatable that would be uh, disastrous if it weren't treated. So there are there are strong reasons to get these early diagnoses, and and that was the uh, the nature of the campaign out of the Alzheimer's Society. Yeah, and I, I think that that's so wise. Um, you know, we have to remove the fear. It's kind of like with diabetes. You know, you get diagnosed, you can get it under control. And, I mean, there's a there's a point and there's a progression with this, but it's all about managing your life and living it to its fullest. And being in denial, um, you know, really doesn't cut it. And I've heard so many people say who have gotten diagnosed with the disease, it was just nice to have a label. Because they just thought they were going crazy, you know. Did I, you know, did I really forget that, or, you know, why can't I do this? And I, I used to be able to, and to know that there's a reason for it. And um, again, nobody likes to be diagnosed with anything. I don't care if it's a pimple on your face, or, you know, you 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 need a, a, a cavity filled, or you know, none of us like to take the time out to deal with issues. But life is full of them. And it's about living your life um, impactfully and powerfully and, and purposefully, and that can still be done um, with the diagnosis of dementia. And there are also other very very important uh, aspects mm-hmm. to this, and, and, and that is that with this being a disease of the aged, there are many mm-hmm. other age-related diseases that co-occur with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And... Individuals who are being treated are usually on multiple medications, and the uh, interactions between these medications, dementia has to become part of the total health picture of the patient. If If a person is taking a drug for heart disease, for example, or high cholesterol, and he's a demented patient and the physician doesn't know that, then uh, compliance with taking the other important uh, drugs may uh, may go down. So without 
knowledge of the dementia diagnosis, a person's total health care uh, frequently suffers. That's a very good point. Plus, the medications themselves sometimes can cause the symptoms. And, you know, when we're taking multiple things and one doctor prescribes this and another one prescribes that, it's it's nice to kind of have them all reviewed and one person really knowing what is going in your body and, and what are the effects of each of them as well. I know what's my Yeah, mom. I was just reading an article. I was just reading an article yesterday about uh, the the problems of getting uh, combination medicines approved through the regulatory agencies, the Food and Drug Administration. And the reality of of our situation uh, in in the general population is that people are taking combinations of drugs that have never been approved as combinations. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I guess I never, I, I didn't know that there was even that level out there, <laughs> you know, as a layperson. And so that's um, that's interesting for me to even hear um, because I didn't, uh, I, you know, I always thought they just kind of viewed a drug kind of by themselves um, when researching. So it shows how naive I am with that. Can you maybe explain a little bit more about the process of um and just touch a little bit, I don't want you to go into too much depth, but of the approval process, because I know you've been involved in, you know, in research and stuff. And what does it take to to develop something and test it and actually get it through the process? Well, you first approved? you have to start with about a billion dollars. <laughs> um, and that, that's, that's a glib response. Uh, mm-hmm. What is generally done is a great deal of preclinical research, uh, this is initially done uh, at a test tube level. Uh, eventually, it's taken to uh, uh, studies in experimental animals so that it, a, a compound which is being developed as a potential therapeutic is studied for the way it distributes uh, throughout a, a living organism. How is it metabolized? Can you achieve doses uh, in the target tissues that are relevant to the uh, ability of the the compound to modulate its target. Uh, Preferentially, they're in models that are relevant to the disease. If it gets all the way through that, uh, that's that's, uh, several years of work uh, that requires, when I was talking about, when you were talking about the the project that I led through lead optimization at AstraZeneca, uh, that was a large project and, uh, you know, a team of uh, 50 people from eight, eight departments because these are the range of disciplines that are required to bring a compound forward. If it makes it through those hurdles, uh, then one needs to apply to the regulatory agencies in order to test the compound in human subjects. And this is with an investigational new drug application, an IND. And then in phase one trials, it's generally on healthy volunteers just to see if if the, uh, the the drug is safe. Uh, if it passes through there, it goes to phase two, which is the first time it's administered to a uh, a small, generally a small group of patients who are um, uh, with the disease that you're trying to target. Uh, you need to show that it's tolerable in the relevant patient population. Preferentially, it has a, um, a signal. Uh, these are small studies, so they're, they're frequently not powered to uh, show a therapeutic effect, but uh, hopefully there's a signal uh, either based on, on biomarkers, so brain imaging, uh, analytes in, in, in Alzheimer's disease, analytes in the, in the cerebrospinal fluid, 
this sort of thing that shows you're actually achieving uh, access to the target that you're, you're trying to reach. And then come the large phase three trials, which are generally multicenter trials that can be up to uh, you know one to two thousand patients, or in some cases even more. And there you're showing an impact on uh, on the disease itself, uh, either on the symptoms of the disease or on its uh, its progression. So you're trying to change the rate of decline, for example, in in an Alzheimer population. And these all have to be placebo-controlled trials. So you have uh, patients who are uh, being given placebos, patients who are being given uh, active drug. Uh, so you can uh, quickly do the numbers. Uh, it, these, this takes a long time. If you're looking at a change in the rate of progression of the disease, they're generally uh, 18 months to two years in order to be able to see that change. Okay. Uh, and that's because of the variability and the complexity of, of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, wow. it, it's extremely costly, and, and the pharmaceutical companies have been struggling with this, and, and literally billions of dollars have been spent over the past 10 years. Wow, it is, um, you know, it's so time-consuming and so much money um, and so much effort going into a, definitely, a, you know, a need. Um, what do you think about the, the difference of putting money into research that will actually find a cure and putting uh, money into support services? Any thoughts along that line? Well, I don't like either or uh, mm -hmm. uh, propositions. Uh, both are important. Uh, I do think there are some very important um, lessons that we've learned over the past few years, and and that is that the disease actually begins uh, long before there are symptoms of of memory problems. So uh, that's a good news, bad news kind of thing. The bad news is. Mm -hmm that by the time patients come into the clinic, the disease is already relatively well advanced. It's established. And mm -hmm. the, um, the, these are the people who have been enrolled in the, in the clinical trials. So it, it, if you think about heart disease as an analogy, it's much easier to prevent it than it is to treat it after you've had a heart attack. Yep. And uh, here with Alzheimer's disease, if 50% uh, of your temporal lobe of your brain has already uh, begun to degenerate, uh, reversing that is, is a much harder problem than treating it before that degeneration uh, becomes established. Now, that problem is how do you identify those patients mm -hmm. who should then be on these preventative regimens. You know, we may already have drugs that have been in clinical trials that will work as preventatives, but fail to show <clears throat> their signals in the clinical trials of people who were in uh, their mild to moderate stages of Alzheimer's disease. So there's some very important initiatives that have now uh, begun that are underway, and these are prevention initiatives. And uh, I'll, I'll mention uh, three of them. One is DIAN, the Dominantly Inherited Alzheimer Network, and these are patients who carry, uh, it's only about 1% to 2% of patients who carry genes that, that guarantee that they will get Alzheimer's disease. These are heritable mutations. And not only do they, these people know that they, they will get the disease if they have the gene, the, the mutant, they know approximately when. So these are patients now in this initiative that come from families that, that are carrying that gene within their pedigree, uh, some of them are carriers, some of them are not. And what we're learning about the prodromal stages of the disease, we, we know what's happening in the brain through brain imaging. We can make measurements of, of certain proteins in the cerebrospinal fluid. 
And basically, uh, there are revised diagnostic criteria that take these biomarkers into account. And these are being followed in patients who are carrying the gene 10, 15, 20 years in advance of the onset of the dementia. Uh, so this will allow us to chart how those biomarkers move, and there are plans afoot to bring uh, drugs into therapeutic trials in patients five to ten years in advance of when they would develop dementia. Uh, so these will be the first real prevention uh, trials. There's another one called the Alzheimer Prevention Initiative. This is primarily a family, a very large family in the uh, Medellin uh, area of Colombia. They have 1,300 people from this family who are enrolled, and they're, they're planning to go as high as 3,000. They're doing a similar thing in this gene-carrying family. Uh, that's being run out of the, uh, the Banner Institute in, in Arizona. The Diane Initiative is being run primarily out of Washington, but these are all multinational initiatives. Uh, and um, they're also planning on doing a therapeutic trial in that family as well as in other North American centers. And uh, we're, we're thinking about uh, aligning our, some of our efforts with that, uh, with that trial. The, uh, the third one is being run by the Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study, and this is in patients who aren't gene carriers but who can be identified on the basis of their biomarker signature, so their brain imaging and their, their um, uh, cerebrospinal fluid uh, analytes, who are showing the, the characteristics of incipient Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to get the disease, Mm -hmm. uh, but who are they, that way they can enrich the trial for a therapeutic trial in those those sorts of patients again as a prevention initiative. If uh, so, in my view, the greatest potential for actually coming up with a drug that will uh, stop this disease uh, and the, the the economic disaster that's going to happen globally if we don't. Uh, is in these uh, these prevention initiatives. There's another one that just started, by the way, in Canada that I, I know relatively less about uh, out of Montreal, but uh, I have some friends who are associated with that. I need to do a little bit of exploring with them. Well, very exciting. And I, I love that you answered, you know, that, that both have to weigh in, both the support services and the research, you know, together, um, because I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in that as well. Um, yeah, I didn't really address that second point. I only addressed the research, but, but support for the patients, the numbers are so great and the needs are so great that there, there's no question at all that there have to be social services brought to, to the patients and to their caregivers. So that, that's, that's just a social requirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm launching a, a new program in Wisconsin through Leading Age that I haven't seen anything done like it before, but it's a, a webinar series that will pull together staff, um, families and the public, and we've got a PR campaign wrapped together with it um, that I, you know, hope to bring to other um, states and countries. <clears throat> and it's it's all about getting people to speak the same language. And my my emphasis with this um, program is really what I call emotional based training, where I don't get into a lot of the research. It's really about shifting the mindset to learn how to deal and accept and embrace this disease um, and not shun it, not be embarrassed by it, um, but really how do we engage this population and how do we deal with it in our lives because it is a disease. That just, I mean, it, it doesn't just affect the person diagnosed. It, it affects a large, large circle around them, and we need to pull together, you know, as a whole with that. So that's I'm, I'm pretty excited about getting that all 
all launched and seeing how that goes. But anyways, um, where do you see the, some of the most promising advances being made in Alzheimer's research? You, you had mentioned these, these um, big kind of family um, clinic research projects, which uh, just sound amazing to me. Um, the numbers are, are large, and I, and I like the idea of some preventative. I had never even heard anyone talk to that aspect of we need to get people in earlier, what we may have developed might work at a different level, at a different stage, if we can get people in and diagnosed and know what we're dealing with. Um, to me, it was like, that was just like a huge light bulb that went off, and I don't know why it never occurred to me before, but it really it hadn't. I had never heard anyone just say that so simply, and it's like, well, does that make sense or what? So are, are there um, some other um, projects or research that you would like to mention? Uh, I, you know, I think the, the, there's a lot of credit that has to go to the uh, the huge effort that's been brought to bear on this disease over the past decade or more. Uh, and and you know, one way of looking at it is that the clinical trials have, have failed because they they haven't been able to to come up with a compound that has had an impact on the disease. But we've learned so much from uh, those efforts. Uh, there, there are also uh, there was there was an effort that was begun in the United States called ADNI, the the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, that was a uh, that is an ongoing. It's now in, in phase two. It's been refunded. Uh, a study of the natural history of the disease. So these are normal people, uh, individuals who are diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease itself, and they're following brain imaging and. Uh, other measures of health, uh, spinal fluid analyses over a long period of time. And this has uh, led to similar initiatives in, in many other countries, uh, Australia, within the EU, uh, in Japan. Uh, China has one that, that's been underway. And we've, we've actually come to realize that there is a natural progression of the disease, and for a variety of reasons that are good, science-based, the targets that have been primarily selected for disease-modifying therapies actually are involved in the very early stages of the disease. And, and by the time the disease is established, the contribution to the ongoing uh, neurodegeneration is no longer that great by those targets. The process, the process uh, gathers steam and other things take over. So there are other targets now that are being identified within the research field that may have a better impact on individuals who have established disease in order to stop the uh, the, the insidious progression of the disease uh, and recognizing that the, the original targets need to be uh, brought earlier as preventatives, but there need to be greater efforts on uh, targets that will have an impact on the established disease. And there are a lot of ideas there uh, that are floating around and that are being investigated, but they haven't progressed to the point of clinical trials the way that, uh, for example, anti-amyloid targets, uh, anti-amyloid drugs have, have uh, been investigated. So there's a lot that, uh, that needs to be done. Uh, and the reality is it all comes down to funding. Uh, they're, they're extremely uh, talented, creative people in, in the research field who uh, have ideas that, that need to be uh, given some breath. 
and uh, the funding issues are, are significant. Yeah, it's. I, I still have a bit of a problem in terms of how we tend to raise funds, and I think it's changed, but I, I still would like to see it change, uh, you know, quite a bit more. But I, I still think that we tend to use this uh, fear angle to raise funds from the public, and I, I think it's time we have to switch to more of a hopeful um, thing, and not that we want to give people false hope, um, but that you know, this is a good thing. You know, I, I just hate it when people are, and I suppose I shouldn't, but I, I, it bothers me when people pull their pocketbook out of fear, um, because I don't like to live by fear, and that's just a personal bias of of my own. And um, you know, I'd like to see something much more hopeful and uplifting in terms of trying to get the public to help back this, um, and not not just um, corporate. Um, you know, pharmaceuticals and things. It's it, you know, it, we just all need to pull together on this because it's it's not going to be done by just one by just one party. We need all this variety of research um, being done. It, it's going to take it's going to take multi-sector efforts. It's going to take the industry. It's going to take the academic institutions, academic researchers. It's going to take mm-hmm. the government. It's going to require some legislative changes. Uh, mm-hmm. The reality is uh, Alzheimer's disease, because of the aging demographics of the population, will bankrupt the medical uh, care uh, capabilities of many countries within the, uh, the foreseeable future uh, unless we come together in these uh, concerted efforts to, uh, to prevent the disease. Now, the hopeful aspect of that is if we can pull that off, and create the the alliances and and fund the good ideas, then um, I think there is there is reason for optimism that we will be able to uh, to treat this disease in, in similar ways that we've been able to. You know, we we haven't been able to stop cancer, we haven't been able to stop heart disease, but we've been able to to reduce the numbers and improve the uh, lifestyle of people who 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 confront these these issues. That's something that we should be able to do uh, with dementia as well. Yeah, and and they, you know, they've built with such, especially I'll use the um, breast cancer has built such a support around that whole process in terms of, you know, if it's makeovers or wigs or you know massage. I mean, there's there's so many different variables um, in terms of support along with the research, along with the medical. That is joined together, and it would it would be beautiful to see that type of of model establish itself even during the research stage, um, and not wait until there is kind of a, the the magic bullet um, or one that because it, it's probably still a ways out. I would imagine just with the time frames and and all the testing that needs to be done and the hoops that have to be jumped through. Um, it, to me, it would be nice to be able to see some of those pulled together more and. And I'm starting to see that in clinics and um, not being quite as siloed, but I think still here in the U.S. We're, we're pretty siloed in terms of, you know, this is what I do and no one else can do it, um, and I'm going to protect it and people have to come to me and I don't want anyone else duplicating it. And I, I think that model's got to be crushed, you know. And uh, yeah, business, business as usual is, is, is not working. Uh, and I agree. I, I, you know, there there are big issues with with intellectual property, patent rights, uh, profit at the end of the day. But we need we need to look at this from a um, 
a more liberal viewpoint that that it's it's society that will benefit as a whole uh if we can pull together and put these sorts of motives aside because the motive should be um solving this disease yeah well, uh, and, I, and, I, and frankly, I don't believe in the magic bullet. The, the magic bullet doesn't exist. Things things happen progressively. There are clinical trials that are coming down uh, for analysis uh, in in the middle part of this year. Uh, my guess is that there may be some signals uh, in some of these trials that will require uh, further clinical trials uh, in order to test hypotheses on uh, certain patient groups. Uh, and that'll be a great advance, but but that's how it that's how it happens, one step at a time. Uh, the magic bullet, the cure, uh, just doesn't doesn't happen. Well, and like they say, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And so yeah. I think you know we we have to be cautious with that. And again, it has to be, um, you know, this doesn't just affect one piece of your life. It it affects multiple um, variables of a person's individuality and presence and confidence and, um, you know, plus it, it has the, the physical effects. And so, you know, we've got we've to take all of that into consideration and really, really shift that. But I think working together, you know, if we can break those barriers down, I'm, I'm trying really hard to do that. That's one of my goals is to be um, a creative, collaborative force that, that helps pull people together to join forces because I have I've grown up under the the premise that you know what if you do a good job and you kind of work for the the greater good the money will come you'll get paid you know and and maybe it's um maybe it's not so much about this money bug that we've all been chasing um that's important to us I mean I, again for me that's a personal belief that that I've really shifted in my mindset in in terms of what's important but that's after, you know, over half of my life dealing with this journey with my mom with dementia. And, yeah, money is nice, um, but is it is it the end-all, be-all? Is it the thing that, you know, you would wish to take with you or that you'd wish you had done different? For most people, I don't think so. You know, yeah. I think it really is about those relationships and living life and embracing it. And so those are the things that, that I really want to be able to help bring to the forefront to help people live with this disease along with the research um, that and the clinical trials that people might be able to, to get involved with and, and all the different businesses that have great services and tools and products. Um, you know, to me, it's all one, one big basket there. Well, I yeah, and to be fair, the, uh, these, these large initiatives I've been talking about are really coming together as public-private partnerships. Uh, even the pharmaceutical industry has realized that this problem is too big for, for individual companies to, to handle. Uh, so they are coming together in the pre-competitive space to uh, put these initiatives in place, working with the government, with the voluntary sector, with the academic sector, so that we can create the knowledge base that will be required to uh, to learn how to treat and prevent the disease. Wow, that's um, I mean that's just a huge, huge step. I mean, I, when I think about it, I kind of go, "Whoever thought that would happen?" Um, and and to me, yeah, that's yeah. so massive um, of a change. And again, you know, it's all baby steps, you know, that we're going through. But um, every baby step just brings us closer to 
to working together and um and making some significant changes and, and sharing kind of the, the glory. I, I, I love working with people and hearing other ideas and because, uh, you know, for myself, I mean, I know I don't have all the answers. And I think any of us that think we do, you know, that's kind of a big mistake um, because there's always someone else's insight and experience that can be brought to the table to make us look at things in a whole different light and, and can cause this brilliance to occur and take you down a whole new path you didn't even know existed. So I, I just think these collaborations are, are fabulous. Can you um, tell me, you know, your thoughts on what are some of the non-scientific hurdles that, that need to be overcome in terms of developing therapies for Alzheimer's research? or? Yeah, as, a, as I've alluded to, they're, they're, they're intellectual property issues. So, so when, when a company invests um, in, in a clinical trial, uh, it literally does cost a billion dollars. And, mm-hmm. the, and the, the company needs to be able to recoup that investment to maintain its enterprise. And it does that on the small percentage of the drugs that they develop that actually make it into, onto the market. And they have a period of exclusivity uh, during which they can sell that drug and others cannot. And then that ex- exclusivity expires. That's a system that needs some change because it's not sustainable. Uh, the, the industry is, has really fallen on some, some very hard times because of the uh, complexity of these trials. There are companies that are closing down uh, certain areas of research uh, particularly in, in psychiatry, there are companies that are beginning to close uh, close their doors on on Alzheimer's research as well, and uh, there there needs to be a way of sustaining the ability of of making it affordable uh, with compensation at the end that will uh, provide the ability for for drugs to be tested and then retested when there's a signal in a trial that may need a follow up trial. And if the patent runs out and the company can't recoup its investment, uh, the company will fold, and, and, and that has happened. And, and it, there are issues with uh, uh, pharmaceutical compounds for going generic. Uh, there, there needs to be some thought brought to what is it going to take in order to make it economically feasible to develop uh, drugs that, com- that treat complex diseases and require long clinical trials. Uh, there are regulatory issues that need to be uh, considered. Uh, so when when you uh, when you do a multi-center trial, you need to have uh, review boards agree uh, on the ethics of the trial for uh, for their patients. Uh, this is a good thing; it, it protects the patients. But the process of getting uh, internal review board approval when uh, a, a a trial requires multiple sites is daunting. Uh, so there are efforts underway to make um, national and international uh, research ethics boards, internal review boards, in order to uh, uh, grease the path towards being able to run trials that are as large as the ones we're talking about. Uh, and again, this all gets back to, to time and the amount of, uh, of, of time it requires to develop the drug through the clinic while that patent clock is ticking. Uh, there needs to be a, a different way of thinking here. You know, we, we uh, in the states, and, and I'm, I'm talking from Canada, but I am a, a U.S. citizen, so I can say we in, in the states did an Apollo project, uh, and 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 
brought the wherewithal to put a uh, a couple of men walking on the moon within six years of stating that this was going to be a national goal. We can do that, but it requires a, a commitment that goes beyond just letting things happen naturally in the competitive marketplace. So uh, these are the, these are the non-scientific types of hurdles that need to be addressed, and they will require changes to uh, to policies. Uh, it'll require legislative changes, and these discussions are underway. But they're just underway; they're, they haven't been uh, achieved. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a long ways to go. We've come a long ways, baby, but we got a long ways to go yet with with all of the all of the things that need to be done to uh, to really make us excel and and um, achieve our goals. You know, in this arena, there. Um, can you tell me, uh, from your experience, how things have have changed in the 26 years since you've, you know, kind of been in this research arena with Alzheimer's disease? What has what has amazed you the most, and maybe what has frustrated <laughs> you the most? It's been a lot more complicated than anyone had imagined. Um, I uh, there's a um, there's a conference that happens. It's an international conference. It, it used to be every two years. Now it's every year. It was. In, it was, used to be called the International Conference on Alzheimer's Disease. It's now called the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. And I remember. I've, I've been to every one of these except one uh, during the course of my career. And I remember the first one I, that I went to. We had cloned the amyloid precursor protein. This. This was. 1988, I think, was the first one, and we were just so full of ourselves. We, we, we've got it. We're going to, we're going to be able to solve this. We're going to have uh, Alzheimer's treatments by the year 2000, and it's been humbling uh, to uh, recognize through all of the work that's been that's gone on how complicated this is. But it's also been fascinating because of what we've learned uh, through these applications about the human brain. Uh, the, the, it, it, it probably can't be uh, stated um, in, uh, in simpler terms. It, it's a fascinating organ. It's really become uh, thought of in, in terms of a, of a three-dimensional uh, integrated circuit where there are actually networks and networks of networks that intersect. And, and neurological disease, psychiatric disease, are being viewed more and more on the basis of, of brain imaging studies over the past few years as network disorders. So we're not looking simply at one target, one drug, but we're looking on the impact across the entire organ uh, on on different networks. And that may explain some of the variability in, in the disease as well, is that the, uh, the injury at different points in a network can affect different systems of networks. So uh, my expectation—it's—it's—it's it's a, it's a fascinating um, story scientifically that we have uh, been able to develop as a field. Uh, but then you know, comes the recognition of how daunting the task really is, and uh, how important it is to combine multiple um, uh, expertise. So it's not just the guys who can synthesize the drugs or who can do the the biology but it's it's going to require mathematicians and modelers and physicists 
everything that you can possibly imagine in terms of a technical expertise to come together and really impact on not only how the, the drugs we develop are, are affecting the targets in the brain, but what happens to uh, the, the uh, other organs in the body who are exp- that, that are exposed to these drugs uh, at different times, at different doses. What are, what are the toxicities? Uh, the uh, impact on the target can have a different timeline than the impact on the toxicity in a different organ. So uh, all of this is, this comes together in terms of systems biology as well. Um, it's it's probably the simplest answer is that it it's going to be easier to prevent the disease and it's going to be to treat or reverse it once it's established. And and I think that's the underlying message of the past 20 years of, of research in this field. Yep, that makes I think that makes a lot of a lot of sense there. Well, we're going to need to wrap up here. I can't believe our hour has gone by so quickly, but I, it, it always does. I just enjoy enjoy the conversation so much. Um, are there is there anything else that you want to touch on, Barry, before we kind of wrap up here? We've got about five minutes left, and um, I just want to make sure that we we cover whatever um, you feel is important for our listeners to hear about what all you're up to and. Um, well, I, I think uh, the only thing to, to to cover is that we all need to go out there and, and do some advocacy, and and make um, you know it's, it's an election year. Make our legislators understand uh, the importance of um, working on neurodegenerative and psychiatric disease to the healthcare system, not only in the U.S. but globally. There has to be a, um, a greater emphasis placed on putting together the alliances and the consortia that will be able to uh, to do the correct work on um, eradicating these diseases. Because the uh, you know, the problem is the target is farther away than the next election. And our um, our leaders need to be accountable for what will happen when they're out of office. Because if uh, if we don't have a long-term view, uh, and we're only emphasizing things, prioritizing things which are um, immediate and will impact on on votes and the next election, we're going to miss the target. Very, so very well get advocacy with the legislature. I think is 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 something that. Um, uh, you know the patients are probably not able to do that, but their families and their friends and their circles, their their networks, they can do that. Right now, Barry, if if someone wants to reach out to you, what is the the best route for them to go? Is there um, a website that they should go to um, at the Toronto Western Research Institute or um, through the University Health Network, or is it best to? shoot you an email or contact me and I'll hook them up with you. How would you like to work that? Well, we're working on a website <laughs> for the mm-hmm. Toronto Dementia Research Alliance. It doesn't exist yet. We have a domain, but we don't have a website. Okay. Uh, probably the best thing, the easiest thing to do uh, since it's it's your listenership is to have them reach out to you and then you just contact me by email. And uh, okay. and I will make myself accessible. Okay. Well, sounds, sounds wonderful. I I appreciate you so much taking this hour to spend with us. It's been very enlightening, and um, I definitely have learned a few things myself. And so, uh, again, I can't thank you enough. 
And I wish well, well, thank you, you. Thank you for what you're doing as well, and, and, and it's, it's really a pleasure. Well, good. You have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk soon, I'm sure. Okay? Thanks, Lori. Thank you. Our next guest is Chris Wynn, and Chris is the director, editor, uh, writer, cameraman, and producer, and he has pulled together an absolutely fantastic film called Forgetful, Not Forgotten, and it's a featured documentary through Current Lakes Film, which, again, he directed. It has won the Indie Spirit um, Film Festival in Colorado um, Springs, and it won Best International Film. And in Cleveland, Ohio, in their Indie Gathering Film Festival, um, it won Best Documentary. This film is, um, is really an important work. It's about an intimate portrait of a family coming to grips with the realities of early onset Alzheimer's disease. And when John Wynn um, was diagnosed with the disease at a relatively young age of 57, his son Chris decided to chronicle the family's journey um, during his dad's final days. It's an honest, moving, and at times heartbreaking film, um, again, called Forgetful, Not Forgotten, that weaves the past and the present um, into kind of a celebration of a man and um, also allows the mourning of his pain and slow and steady disappearance. Um, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good, Lori. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very excited for you to be here. I, I've just, I, I love this film. I think it is so powerful and so well done. And so I want you to share with us um, a little bit about why you think it's so important to share and document stories. Yeah, well, for me, um, you know, this, this, this project, and I consider it more of a, a project now than a film, and I'll get to that in a little bit, but um, this project for me has been, you know, uh, it's been over 10 years uh, in the making. Obviously, it's a very personal project, but I'll just start, you know, a lot of people ask me why I made it and, and how I made it, and um, it really just began as some home movies. Um, I um, was living in Toronto and my father was diagnosed and, you know, I'd go spend time with him um, uh, once they retired back to the cottage and I ended up even living with them. But I really just pulled the camera out um, for fun in the beginning and I just started to accumulate all this uh, footage and, you know, I, I document him through uh, the beginning and the, the middle and all the way to the, the, to the later stages of uh, Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, it, it, I realized later on that the camera uh, became my coping mechanism. Um, it pulled me into the situation. It kept me there. It made me spend time with my father and my mother, who was the primary caregiver. And uh, I never thought about it when I was doing it, but when I look back at it now, the camera really helped me. Uh, get through certain situations. Um, it just kind of, I, I mean, to keep it simple, it gave me something to do. Um, but it really helped me, the main thing, it helped me spend more time with my mom and my dad, and uh, it, it really helped me see the disease for what it is uh, and see what a caregiver and a, a, a goes through. Um, you know, I learned so much, and I wouldn't have learned all that if I didn't document it. And And obviously... 
you know, when I was documenting it, I didn't know what exactly I was going to do with the footage. Um, it wasn't until years into it that I thought I should do something. And the reason I should do something is because the only thing that had helped me to that point, um, trying to understand the disease, was personal stories, was uh, storytelling from other families and other individuals going through the disease. I, I really found a connection with those people. Um, I could get, you know, uh, well, first of all, you realize that you're not alone and other families are going through it and you could talk to people and stuff. So personal stories really helped me out and I realized that, you know, this is what I need to do. I need to take this footage and uh, make it into uh, a personal story. And that's really how it began. So now I encourage other people to do the same. I know uh, nowadays there are a lot more people uh, documenting, whether it's through cameras or uh, still cameras or journaling. Um, you know, nowadays we, we see lots of different stories about uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and, and what people go through. And, you know, everyone can agree that it's a, it's a huge, huge tool um, to help with awareness and, and advocacy and, and stuff like that. You know, I, I agree with you. I I have done a little bit with the camera, not much. I, I take pictures of just moments of my mom on my cell phone or sometimes I'll bring my little flip camera, the digital camera. I don't go in kind of intentionally to do it, but I but I do find myself grabbing those moments. And I I just adore them. I mean, as, yeah. as her daughter, I mean, I go back and I play them, I share them with people, and, you know, it's so healing. And yeah. the same with my writing. Um, and I didn't know that how healing the writing was for me when I initially started the blog. Um, but it's very powerful stuff. And I think it's a way for us to feel a little bit more in control um, mm-hmm. and participative in the disease and trying to, for me, trying to get a positive twist on this. You know. Yeah, no, that's that's in- exactly it. Um, you know, if somebody had, um, and I, you know, I, I do presentations now and I speak to a lot of people and, um, if someone had told me years and years ago that, oh, you know, you should, you should share your story, I probably would have thought they were crazy. Like, why would I put it out there and, you know, expose what my family's going through and everything? And even at the time, you know, uh, I had to do a little bit of convincing uh, with my family to, to let them know, to, to convince them that we should be telling this story. But I, I see now because people watch my film and they come up to me afterwards and they, they thank me, first of all, you know, for sharing. Um, they mm-hmm. say, you know, it, 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 helps, it helped them in this way or that way. Um, so it does help. Um, for sure it helps. And it helps because I work with, the, you know, the Alzheimer's Society here in Canada. And I've done, you know, after the, uh, to backtrack a, a tiny bit, you know, the film was finished in uh, the end of 2008, and then it play, it's played on TV here across Canada. And for me, you know, and then I, like you mentioned, I put it into some small film festivals, and I was happy it won some awards. And I really, you know, thought, what else? You know, I was just happy to get to that point. But what happened after that was I started to get contacted um, by different organizations, mainly the Alzheimer's Society, uh, and they started contacting me, saying, you know, can you come to an event? or to our uh, conference or, or uh, you know, to this or to that and, and show the film or just show clips and, and talk about it. And I've been doing that ever since. I mean, uh, I don't do it full-time, but I was just last week in uh, in two towns in Ontario doing the same thing, and there was over 200 people each night out to hear me speak. Um, so it's been a, a real... I, I, I didn't realize at the time uh, how much it was needed 
to uh, to tell yeah. these kind of stories and, and to get them out there. And now that I've been out there and literally I've done over a hundred presentations, uh, only uh, w- I'm sorry to say only one in the U.S. so far in Boston, but right across Canada I've been to you know something like 75 different chapters of the Alzheimer's Society and, and different organizations just to just to share my story and share in thoughts and. And it's another way for, you know, people to come out. I mean, most of the audience are family members, caregivers, or professionals. Um, you know, and they come up to me afterwards, uh, and they just start telling me their story. So I know mm-hmm. um, it's a real healing uh, mechanism to, to share stories. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen the power that, that my film uh, has helped other people. And, and you know, and so... It's a. It's why I encourage people to do something. Um, uh, I'm actually developing a bunch of other projects, and one is um, um, for children um, of Alzheimer's or dementia. Basically, they're they're workshops uh, where the Alzheimer's Society approached me and said, you know, we we really want to reach out to the younger generation um, to educate them, but we don't really know how to. And uh, I said, well, you know. Teenagers and people in their 20s, if they have dementia in the family, they don't want to come to the Alzheimer's Society and sit there and be lectured. Um, no. You know, they'll totally lose interest right away. So I came up with the idea that they would come into a workshop and we would teach them how to use uh, a creative tool to tell their own story, basically giving them a video camera or a still camera and bringing in writers, directors, filmmakers, and teach them how to use, you know, editing tools. Uh, video cameras and just and teach them to storytelling uh in that way they can go back to their family member whether it's a parent or a grandparent and again it's about getting them uh, not forcing them but getting them to spend more time with that person oh, you know cool. picking up a picking up a video camera starting to film their grandparent uh, whether they're already in a long-term care or still at home it doesn't matter but it helps mm-hmm. all all the parties involved it helps you know it helps the, the, the teenager learn more about the disease and the caregiver. It helps the caregiver and the person with the disease because all of a sudden there's someone there spending more time with them. So, um, yeah, and then we'd work along with them because it would be a series of workshops. So we'd work along with them to produce an end project, uh, again, a film, a story, whatever. And then, again, you know, these films and stories can also be used, uh, you know, I'll put them up on a website, and they can also be used as more educational tools. So, um, you know, people don't realize how powerful storytelling is, but it's it's a powerful, powerful tool. Definitely. I when you were talking about teaching um, the younger generation, I wasn't sure of, of age. So you're targeting kind of junior high, high school. Was that the thought? Yeah. The then? At first, yeah, for these workshops, we're hoping to go into high schools, and it's going to start in the Toronto area. Um, already okay. there's an organization in Toronto called the Art Gallery of Ontario, and they're, they're a, it's a big museum art gallery, and they're, they've agreed to, to host these workshops. And, and the Alzheimer's oh. Society of, of Toronto is, is going to jump on board. We're just in the middle of trying to come up with the final funding for it. Um, but, yes, we're, we'll um, try to target – I mean, we don't want to regulate and we don't want to turn people away. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we'd like to reach out to as young as possible – um, you know, I'm all for now trying to educate, you know, kind of like the next generation of caregivers. And um, so, so, yeah, definitely teenagers and people in their 20s. But, you know, if someone in their early 30s or even, 
in their 40 shows up, we're not going to turn them away. Maybe we'd have to, you know, start a bunch of different workshops. But we're hoping this is the the pilot project, and um, we're hoping that we can take it because um, other chapters of the Alzheimer's Society in Ontario and and other parts of Canada as well has expressed uh, interest, and maybe you know even bring it down to the U.S. if it if it's an effective oh. way to uh, to educate younger people. I would think that it would be very powerful. I used to go into the schools, and I haven't done it in the last couple of years. And I did a an age. I started out kind of speaking about business, and then they got me talking about age sensitivity. And so we played all these games. And then from there, it turned in. Can you do the age sensitivity thing and talk about Alzheimer's and dementia? And it mm-hmm. was so powerful. They are so receptive, and they just you can just see the lights go on in their head. As yeah. their whole their whole mindset shifts because they get a better understanding, and I also saw how despondent and left out they felt in terms of a lot of the decision making. Things weren't talked sure. about in front of them. They had no idea, and they're at that age. They want to help, and they're creative, and they've got the energy. But you know, we've got to tap that, and we've got to help them also process this and i think sometimes as parents you know because my mom i've been dealing with this for 30 years and so my daughter's now 24 um but this started i mean she's all my daughter's life my mom has known or my daughter has known my mother with dementia um in different stages and so it was something that you know in our family i mean i definitely embraced it and talked pretty openly about it and she understood but you know, my nieces and nephews, they didn't have that same um, connection or information. And the disease has impacted them differently in terms of how they engage and um, and, and understandably so. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if there's, if there's a way I can ever help you with that collaboration, even through um, a webinar or something, we I could... I'd be more than glad to give you the interactive games. They're very fun to do, but it, it gives them a little different presence um, and, yep. and um, vision in terms of even what aging is about and what's normal and, and then what is disease-related and how we perceive one another. There's some games with that that can just be, I mean, they just they roar, um, but it really gets them thinking um, as well. So if there's any way I can ever help with something like that, please please let me know and and let me know as it grows because if I can help make contacts for you, I would love, absolutely love to do that. In fact, in the webinar series that I'm launching in Wisconsin, which is uh, shifting our dementia care culture, I will definitely put you down as a resource for people to be able to tap in so that we can try to spread the word a little bit more because I think it's all, you know, about helping one another and we all have different ideas and different skill sets and, um, the kids need to be educated. I mean, the general public at large needs to needs to be talking about this and and needs to understand um, the big picture. And if you're able to tap into their creative juices, um, you know, because they all love the cameras and, and they yeah, and they're yeah. you know many of them love to write um, or mm-hmm. talk. I, I think it could just be. I, I can't even imagine how how wonderful that's going to go. That's going to be a really cool project, Chris. Very very cool. Yeah. Well, we hope to you know um, not again. Uh, we hope to expand it. And again, even if the kids want to come in 
and, you know, they don't want to – we're going to give them so many different options, you know, not just a video camera or a still camera mm-hmm. or journaling. You know, if they want to create a web, their own website or if they want to yep. – uh, if there's a musician and he just wants to write a song, then we're going to try to tap into all the different uh, aspects of it and try to bring in – you know, uh, I have some connections in Toronto and try to bring in uh, a couple filmmakers or a storyteller. But what we also hope to do, um, you know, as the workshops go along, and I think it's going to happen no matter what, that, you know, the first, whatever, 15, 20 minutes of, of a workshop, we'll kind of just talk about projects and talk about how everything's going. And it's really, it's going to turn into a support group. How can, mm-hmm. you know, kids are going to start to oh, say, definitely. well, you know, I'm, I've been filming my grandfather and he started to do this. Is that normal? You know, and so we plan to also maybe bring in, a, you know, someone from the Alzheimer's Society or, or someone else to, to try to answer maybe some other questions. But, you know, we'll spend part of the workshop actually just talking about the disease, but just in an open forum, not, again, not trying to uh, lecture them in any way. But um, so it's it's going to, it's gonna you know, reach all benefits. And, uh, and already, um, you know, the, the Art Gallery of Ontario has said, you know, they'd be happy to host a, an end event where, all the projects are on display, um, you know, uh, in a theater. Oh, how or, cool. So, um, yeah, and, you know, we'll turn that into a fundraiser as well and, uh, you know, raise some money for the local chapter or something. So there's there's endless possibilities um, to this project. And, you know, on that same note, people always ask me, oh, you, you made Forgetful Not Forgotten, and, and what what is your next project? And obviously I don't only focus on uh, stuff with Alzheimer's, but um, – and I, I wasn't planning to make another uh, a film about Alzheimer's, but I realized, again, doing all these presentations, I'd look out in the crowd, and again, the population, uh, everyone there is probably over 50. There only might be a handful of people that are maybe in their 20s, and I'm thinking, why aren't younger people coming out to this? And again, you know, it's a documentary, it's about Alzheimer's, and right away, uh, you know, a person, a younger person would think, well, you know, that's just for old people, what what? Do I have to do with it? So in my travels, I've started to uh, collect names and start to talk to people. And so I'm planning to make another film, uh, hopefully, whether it gets broadcast or not, um, or I just post it on the Internet. It doesn't really matter. Um, But I'm going to focus on um, younger people that are dealing with the disease. And again, not younger people that have the disease, but people in their 20s and their 30s. Um, that has affected them on a, or is affecting them on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, there's a lot of them out there, um, people that either have to become a caregiver because, um, you know, one of their parents uh, has developed Alzheimer's in their, in their 50s and they're divorced or, or the other parent has, has passed away or something, and all of a sudden they realize that, oh, my God, I'm, I'm only 25, but I have to, you know, become a caregiver. But there's all kinds of different situations uh, as well as, you know, uh, even if, uh, you know, a couple of examples, um, there's a young couple in Toronto that I've interviewed and they've just had a baby and, uh, you know, the mother has Alzheimer's, but they live a, a distance away, you know, and she's struggling, uh, the daughter, with how do I help when I have a newborn and my mother, you know, needs help. And so it, it affects all different people in different ways, whether it affects your family, your job. Uh, you know, some people, kids even have to, like, drop out of college or school to, to, to help out in any way. So I think if I can make a project or a film that only focuses on younger people then mm-hmm. and get it out there, then younger people are going to be more interested to watch it. Um, 
right? Because younger people, I think that's the biggest problem with even, I mean, my film, it, it focuses, I'm in it, and my father's only 57, but still, there's still this huge stigma that, you know, it's an older person's disease, and, and why would I care about that? You know, why, why do, do, I, do I need to learn How anything about that? Me? But we all know that, you know, yes, majority of the people that do get these diseases are over 65 and older, but there's a lot more younger people getting diagnosed with early onset. But we know we know how it affects people down, you know, in the family, uh, down the chain. So there's there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s and even 40s and even teenagers that, you know, are somehow dealing with this. So I think a project, other than the workshops, but try to get a, a film or video out there that shows, <clears throat> you know, them on a daily basis having to deal with, uh, they're just at a different part of their life, you know. Most primary caregivers are, are you know, older and retired. But if you're all of a sudden a, a primary caregiver and you're only in your 20s, you're you're completely you're in the, the kind of like the prime of your life, you know. And it's you're thinking, yeah. I'm too young for this. Why why is this happening to me? And how am I going to handle this? And mm-hmm. we all know they're out there. So I've I've got you know I've interviewed probably about. Um, six or seven uh people so far and uh you know i'm still mm-hmm. uh, researching some more so it's it's not a project that i'm uh doing quickly it's a forgetful not forgotten it took me like eight years to make so um, i'm hoping you know over the next couple of years to uh to get this this project uh going and finished well i don't know if you're familiar with this film uh, it was just sent to me um by somebody and it's it's a very powerful film and it's about a family, and it really focuses on the effects of this disease with a teenager. Um, okay. And it's called Fragile House, and it's on my blog at alzheimerspeaks.com. Um, you can go go there, click on the blog, and it's from January 28th. But it is a very powerful film, and it shows the fear and the second guessing of what's wrong with me. Why is Grandma yelling? Did I really forget? Did I actually do that? And it's 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 this, this whole insight that we tend to forget about because as caregivers, you know, as as the adult child taking care of your parent, you get so focused on that and you think you're the only one that this disease is affecting. And this yeah. really brings to light um, that it is so much deeper and that we all need to to come together with this. We need to talk about this more honestly. Um, we need to share our feelings and at the end, um, there's this huge, you know, disconnect um, and fear and, and anger and questioning. But at the end, um, it comes together with purpose. She feels mm-hmm. the purpose with her grandma and how she can help. And it's it's absolutely beautiful the way that they they did that. And I think that's part of this whole process is, you know, our kids think, you know, it doesn't it doesn't affect me because that's what they're told. You know, it's an adult thing, but we all right. affect one another. And I mean, how many times does an older person? I mean, they, a younger person just brings them so much joy because they come with this energy and this creativity and and this many times non biased attitude and acceptance that you know as we as we age, um, we're not always so generous in those areas and we become mm-hmm. more judgmental and so if we can help kids um become creative and 
I mean, I'm just thinking of all the variables your project could include from, you know, like the film and the writing and the music and um, photography and sketching and plays. And, I mean, it's, it's and endless. It, uh, kids are huge into animation now, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If it's video games or whatever, a lot of kids are in in colleges taking it, taking um, courses in animation. And, and if someone comes into the workshop and says, you know, I really want to do animation, but how do I do that? You know, we would suge- we would say to them, you know, all you have to do is is take uh, some kind of voice recorder and just interview uh, your family member, and it can just be audio, and then you can add animation, any kind of animation you want to it. People do that all mm-hmm. the time now. And you know, we're hoping to. Uh, if, at the end of these workshops, the projects, you know, we're going to encourage the kids to not just, you know, show it this one time at, at, at the end of the end of the workshops. We're going to encourage them, you know, put it into a small film festival or, or, you know, put it into a contest or get it out there. You know, we'll help you get it out there as much as we can. But um, so, you know, it's something. Again, you know, the whole the whole basis is. To, to to help them learn more about the disease and, and help all the all the people involved, but you know it could be a starting point for that that um, kid to say you know this is kind of what I want to go into now with schooling or, or whatever you know because uh, we're not we're not limited um, you know it's not going to be limited to just you know people that have these skills and because we really want to teach them a skill as well um, so yeah again getting back there's just there's so many variables and so many ways that these workshops can go and I just I really hope that uh, I hope they get get off the ground you know I have a a meeting this week for some funding um, and we all know know how hard funding is Um, but we're not even looking for that much to get the we already have the uh, the rooms and like I said at the this at this organization has already planned to give us the rooms and and some of the means so we're just trying to get some initial funding to, to get it going and then I really hope um, it'll take off, and I, I hope you know. I, I plan to um, start a website for the workshops, and you can see uh, the progress, or you know, even have maybe a, a webcam, and you can see what one of the classes is like, and just really keep it interactive and uh, uh, and do it that way. Because I think again, uh, keeping th- nowadays, you know, with all the social media and stuff, kids are totally into that, and if you keep that. That aspect of it going, um, you know, or even get kids to keep a blog, right, and, and yeah. talk about their project and, and how it's going. So just really keep them uh, open to any any suggestions and not uh, limit them to, to this or that. So there's there's so many things that can be can be done. So well, I really you could, you could even um, you know if you if you decide in the future do kind of a a webinar type thing because most of them have web cameras on their computers and you could connect people all over the world and sure. you know share desktops and and be able to share films and sketches or songs and um you know that could be done too you know in the in the future so it's endless and I I love how you talk about you know tapping in and helping them build their skill level I think so many of us have multiple skill levels that we don't even know that are there because we've never tried um, or yeah, never yeah. It's, it's a huge thing because I, I mean I remember telling my mother you should you know keep a journal and she's like I've you know I've never really written anything before and I'm like so mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you can't start now I mean that doesn't mean anything so I mean she did end up keeping a journal 
and uh, you know, people tap into like, actually, you know what? I enjoy this um, writing on a daily basis and, and keeping track of things. And it's it's a great thing, you know. My mother, she still has all her journals, and you know, I'll go and flip through them once in a while and, and flip back to those days. And um, you know, again, people have come up to me at presentations and they say, I have a journal. What should I do with it? And you know, I always encourage them. I said, well, you know, send me some pages and. Um, you know, uh, talk to someone else and, and try to get some more, you know, um, <clears throat> information about maybe you should turn it into a book or a short story or, or anything along, anything you want, but I, I always just encourage them to, to share it somehow, um, to, you know, to use it and share it somehow, whether it's just giving it to the local chapter of the Alzheimer's, you know, society or association or, or any organization. But uh, that's, you know, I think that's the, the one thing that I'm trying to encourage families to do that um, it's great to document for your own family and stuff but I also believe that you know sharing is, is a huge huge part of it as well yeah I don't know if you're familiar with Alzheimer's disease international I just had Mark Wortman on the um, executive director and yeah I met I met him last year in Toronto I went um, oh. I was at the uh, the um, big uh, conference they had in Toronto. I was lucky enough. I couldn't afford to go, but I, I convinced a, a health organization to pay my way because I'm, you know, I'm just an independent uh, video producer, and, and now I guess I'm a, a public speaker. But, um, yeah, I, I met him very briefly, um, and, you know, uh, I was very encouraged by him and, and a few others about, you know, the global problem that's going on. And, uh, um, you know, he said to me just to... Uh, I, I I never I don't think he he actually got to see uh, the film but anyways uh you know he encouraged me to to keep going and stuff like that and to uh to keep continuing creating projects um anyways sorry but you had him on last week Oh yeah I had him on last week and he along with I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Richard Taylor and Laura Bromley have on the Alzheimer's Disease International site um a section called I can I will and mm-hmm. it's, it's all spearheaded about, you know, adding your voice and contributing stories and what have you heard and, and what's worked and what hasn't. And so that might be something where um, you can drive people to because it's really about, you know, trying to shift, again, our dementia care culture and, and share what it is we've learned, what we've felt, um, so that people don't feel alone and abandoned and um, mm-hmm. and again, I you know I'll be glad to help any way I can. If if you run across somebody who wants a story published or something, I, I would be glad to push that out on the blog and you know, or if it's a short film or if they've you know whatever. Um, yeah, it's not a problem. So I think a lot of us can work together to try to help raise raise the voice together because we can't do it alone. But it would be wonderful to see you know more blogs and. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. There's, I, I've been meeting people here and there, and I, I encourage them to, um, you know, I, I tell them that I'll uh, talk about them on my website, or, you know, um, if someone else has a blog or, or something, I've started up or started some kind of Facebook page that, you know, I'm always happy to help. I had, a, you know, even a, an organization contact me, and what I actually do now because. Obviously, I can't travel everywhere, and, and organizations don't have the funding. I do a lot of Skype um, stuff. I, I did one last Friday, a uh, small town just north of Calgary. 
in Alberta was showing uh, Forgetful Not Forgotten, and uh, they had about 40 people there, and they said, you know, we'd love for you to come, but we just can't afford it. And I said, well, do, you know, do you have Skype? I can, you know, so they Skyped me in after the film, and uh, I answered questions and stuff. And I've done that about three or four different times. So, I mean, there's, there's you know, tons and tons of uh, 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 ways to get information out there. And you're right, to help each other. You know, if, if, if there's uh, somebody going through it and it's just, got a Facebook page then and they contact me I'm more than happy to uh to promote that page as, as much as I can or if someone's having an event um you know another organization was just having a small fundraiser in a small town and I put a little video together of myself talking about my experiences and I I sent them the video and and they've used it um they used it to start the event so there's there's tons of ways to uh connect with people nowadays and definitely helping each other out is is a huge thing as well yeah yeah, and it's it's so much fun, and it's so and to me it's just so empowering too. Um, it's just very very exciting um, mm-hmm. to be able to see the creativity and the meaning that that people you know are, it's coming to be. I mean, it's just blossoming, and and people aren't as fearful. And yeah, um, and, I I'm you know I'm all about um, these projects and uh, some you know the new projects in the future. You know, I hope to one day, uh, you know, I was thinking about even trying to do a web series where I would host a web series and kind of, um, it would probably, st- again, start in Canada because that's where my connections are, but it easily could come to the U.S. And it would just be, you know, again, three to five minute videos, but it would be more of a series, like something mm-hmm. you would see on TV. And the, and, the, and the series would just be kind of like telling me and telling other people's stories, but kind of me as the host traveling around to you know, families and caregivers, but not just that, but organizations and, and people, you know, uh, some towns or some places that are are, are doing it right, I guess, or, or whatever, however you want to call it. But um, just, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm kind of looking into uh, projects that maybe are not different, but just that I haven't seen before. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that's what we all have to start doing because, Obviously, we're at a point now, and we all know this, that, you know, this disease is getting worse and it's affecting everybody's, you know, economy and healthcare system. And, um, you know, if we can get information out there in different ways, um, it can only help because it can uh, bring it to a new light, bring it to new people, um, make people wake up and realize that, you know, this isn't going away and it is going worse. And at some point, it probably is going to affect me, even if it doesn't now. So to kind of tell tell the story in different ways and, and trying to get it out there in different ways. Um, not to say that it hasn't, uh, as in, you know, it's been done wrong up until now. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's just, I think, uh, you know, again, getting back to the word Alzheimer's, it's, it's, it's almost, first of all, the Alzheimer's Society in Canada and even the Alzheimer's Association, they should really be called the Dementia Society. Um, mm-hmm. But there's still a real stigma behind that word, Alzheimer's, and it really turns people off. It really scares people um, because I think uh, the mainstream media has, has has made people feel that way. That I mean, I've been interviewed by the mainstream media tons of times, and I'm not trying to put them down. I always, you know, I'm glad when they want to help advertise, but they always ask me the same kind of questions, and it's always about you know the heartbreak and the, and you know how bad the disease is. And yes, it's it's a yeah. horrible disease. However, there's a lot more than that to it. There's there's tons more, um, and I think. Uh, you know, the general public 
hears the word Alzheimer's and they just think horror and death and everything. And um, so I think if we can create projects that aren't all only just about that, um, you know, people can see it in a different light and people might be a little bit more interested in learning more about it than just the horrors of it. I, I agree. And I think part of it has to do with, you know, that is how, anyways, in the U.S. here, that's how we've raised funds. Scare the crap out of them and they'll pull their wallets out. And, yeah. and so that's the pitch the media has gotten um, yeah. through a lot of organizations and not just Alzheimer's, but, um, you know, it. It's just the way it's been done, and it's not, in my opinion, it's not a good way to function, um, and no. it doesn't do anybody justice. And no. so I had that conversation with Barry, you know, um, who I interviewed from Toronto yeah. earlier, and, I, and I, have a, I have a huge, huge bias on that. But I think it is up to us to say, hey, there is more to this. And, you know, in a strange, strange way, I tell people that this disease, my mom's disease, has been a gift to me. And people go, how can you say that? It's so devastating. And I'm like, but it's so real. It's so intimate. When you can get past your fear of it, yeah. it will connect yeah. on a level you didn't even know existed. Yeah. And it, it's just so touching. And it's the little, little things. I mean, when I take the camera now with my mom or I go to visit her, I mean, I'm looking for her eyeballs to shoot my way, you know, or her eyelids mm-hmm. to open up, or a smile. It's very simple things um, yeah. that uh, that bring me so much joy that yeah. I totally over have overlooked in the past in my life. Those were just common gestures I took for granted, and so yeah. it it's allowed me to connect on a much deeper deeper level and I think that's you know what your film brings out as well um, well kind of I, mm-hmm. I, I'm the same I feel exactly the same way that if my father the last um, you know when I was filming him in those last four or five years of his life if he didn't have that disease I would have never been that close to him um, yep. that having the disease brought me in brought me closer and you know and we never would have had that relationship and you're right I mean uh, uh, I, you know, people, I often say, you know, there's a whole saying that, you know, that they're a cancer survivor, they've survived cancer. Well, you know what? There's Alzheimer's survivors, you know, mm-hmm. just because it doesn't mean that they get rid of the disease or don't have it, but they survive because they end up living, uh, you know, people can live a long time and, 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 and be happy and stuff. And um, so I often say that there are such things as, as Alzheimer's survivors. Um, it's hard to think about, but you know, yeah. There's there's so many good. There were so many great aspects um, w- later on when he got into the disease, and it was still him. It was still my father. Um, I still learned from him. I was still mm-hmm. having great moments with him, and yeah, there was a lot of hard moments. But you know, you take the good with the bad, and and well, you know, there if is I went an in there, all of life. You know, yeah. there is an all of life, and that's what people keep forgetting. They they start focusing on this big negative, you know, black hole spiral thing. And it's like there's so much more to any yeah. life than one The biggest problem is that people have to, um, families and caregivers, and, you know, there's I know there's tons and tons of stories about children um, that won't go to visit their parents anymore. They don't feel mm-hmm. like that's them. Uh, and, you know, they won't help out their mother or the primary caregiver. And, you know, they have to get over it. They have to forget about 
how not forget about how your father was like you can remember how your father was but how he is at this moment that's what you have to accept you have to accept them for how they are at this moment and still love them at this moment no matter what they're doing no matter if they're in a you know wheelchair they can't talk or who cares you know i mean my brother says in the film and i agree with him that you know towards the end there when he was in a wheelchair and he was just kind of mumbling we both accepted that you know what he's probably really happy right now um, you know, mm-hmm. in his in his own mind, uh, he's probably having a good time because he did. He sat in his chair and he he hummed along to music or he sang. You know, and of course there were hard moments when he would get upset and cry or whatever. But um, we accepted that. We accepted who he was for that moment, and we accepted the fact that that's still my father there, um, no matter yeah. what stage or how much he's changed in the last few years. It doesn't matter. Who cares? And you know, one of the biggest questions that people like to ask me and again it's it's the media as well loves to ask me this question is um when did your father not know that you were his son you know they really Mm -hmm. want to know about those family connections and my answer is who cares you know what if i went to visit him and he was happy and he thought i was a friend then who cares who he thinks i am you know um it's hard for people to do and you know uh, and it wasn't something that I accepted right away. It took me some time to realize it, but that's kind of what you have to do. Is If you want to hold on to the past for yourself, that's great, but um, you know that person isn't going to go back to how they were before and just accept how they are right now. Well, and I think what we forget in this whole piece is we all want to be loved unconditionally, but then we're mm-hmm. looking at somebody with Alzheimer's and says, yeah, but not you. You know, yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm going to reject that that you've become yet if that was us we would be crushed because we Mm -hmm. all you know and that that's one of the biggest gifts my mom has given me is she is the safest person in the world to go visit because she doesn't judge me that's gone and she has taught me to release my ego so like with the whole name thing um you know i would like to think that everybody in every relationship is more than just a name yeah. Because if you're just a name, that's pretty sad and it's pretty shallow. And so yeah, for sure. you know, letting go of that name thing was really letting go of my ego, um, of making it about me. You know, why mm-hmm. doesn't she remember me? Because you go down that whole path of it's about me and what did I do yeah. wrong and how you know, and it, and it's not about us. Yeah, it's a, it's about them. And so when you let it go and just say. Gosh, I'm a I'm a good person. I'm comfortable for them to be around. This is cool. This is yeah. good. This is all I need. Yeah. You know? People and people it, often ask me when they they don't know, like if it's a neighbor or a friend, and they they say, you know, I go and I, I visit so and so, and they have Alzheimer's, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to say, and I'm like, well, don't worry about it. Just you know, first first of all, you're going to visit. That's the main thing. And keep yep. continuing to visit. And just talk to them. You know, someone says, well, what happens when they, they can't answer or they can't talk back? And so just tell them how your day was and don't ask them questions and pick up a newspaper and just read and, and spend time. So a lot of people are really worried. Uh, again, it's about, all about the unknown, and they're really very worried to, to do something wrong or trigger them or something's going to you know trigger them that they're going to, you know, whatever, freak out or something. But really they just have to realize that, first of all, you know, just go. Uh, the caregiver will love the fact that you're going, first of all, because we also know that a lot of friends and family just stop visiting and stop calling because, again, yeah. it's all about the undo- unknown. They don't know um, what the disease is like or anything, but um, if they just spent some time, they would, you know, 
come to accept it and, and, and come to understand it a little bit more. And it would help out so many people, um, not just the person with the disease, but the caregiver and the, and the family. But again, it's these, it happened to my mom, and I know it happens to a lot of people that uh, uh, once, you know, the, my father started getting worse that, you know, family and friends just stopped calling. And it's, it's, it's a horrible thing because this is the time when that person needs you the most. Yep, yep, exactly. Well, the you know, when you're talking about, you know, just being there too, it's like how many times do you just sit with a friend and you don't need any words. It's just being in that person's presence that makes you comfortable. Yeah. It's an energy yeah. thing. It's a it's a conscious just uh, choice of being wanting to be with that person with with no words even having to be said and you know I'm a firm believer that they can still take everything in they just might not be able to respond how how um, how they used to but I sure. believe that their their senses are still for the most part able to take everything in that's going on and in some cases I think at a higher more attuned level. Um, mm-hmm. And I have nothing to back that up other than my experience in um, yeah, working yeah. with people with dementia. But it's kind of like, you know, someone who is deaf or someone who is blind. Their other senses, they say, raise to help compensate mm-hmm. for that. And I think we forget about that. We forget about all of our nonverbals. You know, they can feel our fear. They can feel our agitation. They can feel our joy. Um, and so... Yeah. You know, as soon as we walk into a room, so we have to be much more conscious about that because it's yeah. it's something so simple that can have such a huge impact. And I mean, mm-hmm. if you walked into my house right now and you were, you know, a raving maniac, that's going to affect me. I'm going to be scared. You know, I'm going to cower. I'm going to look for my phone and call nine one one. For sure, it's going to happen if you walk in with a with an attitude. You know, yeah. to someone who can't communicate versus yeah. if you walk in with a smile and, you know, a great greeting and, you know, your your voice is filled with joy and you don't seem to have any stress, you're, you're smiling and laughing, uh, that's going to make me at ease. That's going to make me want to be in your space yeah. and be with yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just, it's such little things that we have to teach people. And I think your, your films... Um, and the work that you're doing is just absolutely marvelous in terms of raising people's awareness and consciousness, you know, of that. Um, one thing that you said that you wanted to talk about, and I want to make sure that we go over this, was the importance of kind of the secondary care partner or caregiver. You want to explain? Yeah, well, that was something that, um, I, you know, I didn't uh, think about at the time, but obviously I went, I moved back and uh, ended up living with my parents, and this is when I began to film and you know i was there to to help my mother out in any way i could and and help my father but i mean it it, it became a huge important role secondary caregiver because you can step back and look at both situations which i know not it's not um not every family has that uh capability or has that third per third party to do that but um if you can whether it's you know a sister or a brother or a neighbor uh, you know, a neighbor coming to check on you every other day or whatever, um, I think it's a huge advantage because, you know, we all know that caregivers, um, it's it's hard for them to, to think about their own health um, because they are taking care of this, this person. 
Um, but a, a secondary caregiver can can stand back and, and approach them and and say to them, you know, you should, you, you know, you need a break. You need to go and do this and do that, and I can watch, you know, this person. So it's just it's just I guess it's all about that third party um, importance to to. to step back and, and look at both situations and see where, you know, uh, help is, is needed. But, again, it's 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 not something that I thought about in, until, you know, partway through the disease. And, you know, an, an example is that if um, somebody was uh, calling um, to, you know, uh, to talk to my mother, um, I would try to – I would always try to answer the phone when I was there, um, mm-hmm. always try to answer the phone because you never know who's calling, right? It could be – uh, a friend, a neighbor, someone, which is fine, but it also could be the bank or it could be, you know, a, a solicitor or something like that. So mm-hmm. if my mother's having a hard day, it's the last thing she needs is a, a some idiot calling her to bug her about something that's completely useless. So, you know, I just always tried to grab the phone to be that uh, that buffer between, uh, you know, uh, whatever whatever was bugging her or if, if a neighbor came over and said, you know, oh, or, a neighbor or a friend of her, or even one of her brother's sisters had to discuss something with her i would always say well what do you you know what do you have to discuss because she's kind of had a tough day so it was little things like that you know um but mm-hmm. again uh, i think it, it can difference. be helpful it can be helpful to to help out the the situation yeah it's um it's very powerful stuff the the little stuff that we tend to overlook and and to you know to get people i guess um engaged in talking and and just increasing their their perceptiveness of what is going on and how are you doing cuz yeah. i know for myself i go oh, i'm fine i'm fine and i inside yeah. i was like dying you know cuz i yeah. kept thinking that i had to be strong and in control and i couldn't let anybody see me that way cuz that's not who i was you know i was sure just, sure Super mom, super caregiver, you know, blah 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 blah, and it's like, oh my gosh, it almost killed me at times. And yeah. um, being able to have a release and, and knowing that what you're feeling is normal, and that you're going to mm-hmm. go through these stages, you know, it's a it's an incredible, it's an incredible disease and process that I think has to be understood and respected at a much higher level than than what it is, you know, at this yeah. point. And I think, um, you know, people like you are just going to help raise that bar and be able to get to people in, a, you know, different modes and different mediums are, are I mean, that's just very, very critical. Because yeah, yeah, and, and, and we know it's a, you know, it's a critical time as well. So, um, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to... Not only do my own projects, but again, kind of um, create a, a group of people, you know, um, that we can all work together. You know, you like you said, you included. It doesn't matter where you live, but just try to try to help um, with either you know my projects or if I hear other people that have great projects. You know, like you like you said, you know that that film. I, I I've seen so many great films, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to post stuff on my Facebook page about uh, new films, whether they're documentaries or, or fictions or, or whatever, or even just new videos. You know, I, I, I'm actually approaching. Um, again, 
obviously I have a, a video background, and I really feel that video can be very powerful. And, and the reason I say that because I've spoken at many conferences, and uh, usually I speak with a couple other people uh, during the day. And you know, we've all been to those conferences where um, uh, someone will get up, and, and it's an expert about this, and then a doctor gets up, and it's an expert about that. But they can, you know, you can look around in the crowd, and, and some people are are nodding off or not really listening. Um, but I get up there and I speak for a bit, and then I show a you know a 30 second clip from my film, and then I talk a little bit more, and another 30 second clip, and people seem to be a lot more engaged because I'm actually not just talking, but I'm, I'm giving them examples of of what I'm talking about. So I, I really believe in you know uh, we all know how huge video is now on the internet with YouTube and everything. So yeah. uh, I really believe that the videos um, can really really help people and and uh, a simple other idea i had is that with whether it's the alzheimer's society and the alzheimer's association in the us or here in canada you know they have a real problem still trying to find people right there's people in their community that are going mm-hmm. through uh this disease and they they won't reach out and, and they're trying to encourage them to you know after there's a diagnosis you should come you know to us right away and you know we can help but people are very unaware of you know when they walk through that door uh, at the office, like what they're going to see or who they're going to meet. And, you know, I've talked to the Alzheimer's Society, uh, different chapters, and I suggested, why don't we put a little three-minute video together, and it's kind of a tour of your office or, or a tour of your staff. And so people mm-hmm. can go to the website and click on it and at least know, kind of take a quick look at what they're going to come into when they when they have a meeting the next day or something. Um, you know, uh, it's just little things like that. Um, that might help yeah. out, that might might say to a family, um, make them feel a little bit more comfortable, right? That's really what you're trying to do is make them feel more comfortable. So, you know, if they can do that in their home on the Internet and kind of see a small video and say, all right, well, at least I know when I go in tomorrow I'm going to meet this person, that's what they look like, and this is the room that I'm meeting in and stuff like that. And, and Or, mm-hmm. I, you know, people don't know what support groups are. They hear about them and they think, oh, my God, a support group? Do I really want to go sit and tell I my story? I don't have time other- for that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have time for that, and I, I don't want to tell people. But it, so I, I'm, I, I've uh, filmed a, a couple support groups, and uh, I'm going to plan to do a lot more. And you know, obviously, with everyone's permission, I don't post stuff without people's permission. Um, but mm-hmm. I think if you could click on and see a, a one-minute, two-minute, you know, clip of what a support group is and what you talk about, it, it might make somebody um, more at ease to go and, and and sit with a support group. You know. So again, yep. it's it's little things like that, that that might be able to help out. Well, you know, I agree, and I think um, one of the things that they're doing here in Minnesota, which has just worked out beautifully, is they are starting to have um, the the clinics are working with the Alzheimer's Association. They're asking permission from the patient. Can we can we send your information on to the Alzheimer's Association? And then the Alzheimer's Association contacts them. But the first mm-hmm. person who contacts them is actually someone with the disease. Yeah. So it's someone with early memory loss who becomes a mentor and introduces them to the Alzheimer's Association and says, I've been there, I've done that, I'm doing it. Yeah. And it, it, they said it's been amazing, the connection, because they feel such a relief that someone who actually knows what they're going through, not someone who has a degree, you know, or has a job title, but someone yeah. who actually is living and breathing it. And they said that that has just been a phenomenal, phenomenal um, process in terms of getting people engaged. 
Chris, right, we need right. to wrap up. This hour has flown by. Um, <laughs> you, how, how can people get a hold of you? What? Um, um, what? There's a couple uh, different ways. First of all, um, you know, I have a website for the for the film Forgetful Not Forgotten. So it's just forgetfulnotforgotten.com. Um, you can find out everything on that website. It's it's a website, and obviously there's a whole section about the film. You can see some clips. If you'd like to purchase a copy of the film, you can purchase it online at forgetfulnotforgotten.com. But it's also a, another community. Um, people, we have members, and people keep blogs and uh, write on our discussion boards. And it, on there, it says contact filmmaker, so you can contact me there. Um, I also have a, a Facebook page. Um, where I'm trying to connect to younger people, and the Facebook page is just um, it's just younger younger caregivers and their stories. It's called, so you can search for that, um, and you can contact me there, or you can just shoot me a simple email um, at uh, cawin at hotmail dot com. So there's many ways for people to contact me. If you Google "forgetful not forgotten." Um, you'll get tons and tons of information because, uh, like I said, it's been around for three years. Uh, with all the presentations I've done and with all the media I've done, um, if you Google Forgetful Not Forgotten, Chris Wynn, you'll see uh, tons of information about me and about the film and other ways you can contact me as well. Wonderful. And I will be posting this on the blog as well, um, all of your contact information too. So. Thank you so much for your time. I, I could talk to you all day long. It, uh, you're just doing some fascinating <laughs> work. So um, keep it up. And let me know when your program rolls out, and we can definitely do an announcement and shoot that out to our audience and, and maybe even have you back on the program if you want to Well, talk for sure. And, and thank yeah. you. Again, thank you, Lord, for everything you do. Your blog is great and your website and everything. And this radio show is great, too. So, you know, it's people like you and I, we have to keep connecting and, and keep moving forward and, and, and gather an army of people that, that want to do this as well. Yep, I agree. I agree. Our next show is going to be on February 7th, and I'm going to have Dr. Richard Taylor and Laura Bromley on, and they are going to be talking about that I Will, I Can program that's uh, associated with Alzheimer's Disease International, and that's going to be a fascinating program. Um, Richard is very opinionated and has some great ideas, and he is diagnosed with the disease, and he is not about to succumb to it. And so he is he is just a mover and a shaker and a fascinating guy. And then on the 9th, I'm going to have Matt Grural of Keeping Us Safe, and we're going to be talking about driving in dignity um, and who doesn't have questions, you know, regarding that. On the 16th, I'll have Carrie Lusick, um, an author of A Baker's Dozen, Life Lessons from a Baker's Dozen, is it's called, and we've got several shows lined up after that as well. Once again, if you've enjoyed the show today, if you wouldn't mind liking us, tweeting us, um, sending the link to your friends, um, and posting it on Facebook, we would really appreciate all your help because it is about working together um, to improve the quality of life. And if we're going to shift our dementia care culture, the only way we can do that is together. So thank you again for listening. And as always, think ahead to go ahead and remember the three things that you can do when you are meeting with someone. Um, just ask yourself, are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? And you can get that memory chip tool on my website at www.alzheimersspeaks.com. Thank you so much for your time today and look forward to talking to you all soon. Bye now.
Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.